Recently, we were at the famous Malecon. It was early in the evening and we were sat on the vast seawall that hugs the coast of Cuba's capital, Havana. In front of us was a beautiful sunset full of rich pink and purple hues. Families turned out in the warm evening to shoot the breeze with their children. Behind me, by the road, there was a man selling flavoured ice pops and some were enjoying a cigarette after work or sharing a small carton of cheap white rum known as a planchao. Gentle waves slapped the surface of the rocks below me and we were paging through a piece of old media, a state newspaper. So you have a copy of Granma, which is, the, which is Cuba's official newspaper in your hand. Um, tell me more about it. Yeah, Granma is officially the Communist Party's uh, mouthpiece, and this is today's copy. And it, I mean, as you, it's sort of unchanged in decades, really. Um, you can see it's pretty thin. There's just two double pages at the moment. Uh, that's partly because of a lack of paper, a lack of ink. Uh, it's a kind of tangible example of the cuts and the austerity that Cuba's having to go through. A lot more, packed in it, though. Yeah, quite a lot packed in. It's a pretty dense typeface and kind of, kind of a, you know, a lot there. But, um, but I guess what's interesting is just... It's sort of unchanged editorially in all that time as well, you know. It's, it, it knows what it is, Grandma. It knows that it is uh, there to speak for the Cuban Communist Party and, by extension, the Cuban government. Um, it is revolutionary through and through. Don't come to this looking for sophisticated comment or criticism of what's being done here. This will give you the party line. And this is what this is used for. Tech-savvy, young, forward-thinking, outward-looking Cubans. Uh, I wouldn't say they ignore grandma, um, necessarily, but they're not, they're not particularly interested. They're not consuming it. It's not relevant to their lives. And if they want to find out what's happening in the island, they're, they're probably going elsewhere. So if young people weren't going to Grandma, where else were they going? Well, around us, as we sat by the sea, we could see people on their phones. I'm Will Grant. And I'm Raha Kansara. And this is the BBC Trending podcast. In this edition, Cuba's Digital Revolution. The internet, social media and smartphones are changing communist-run Cuba. As a reporter for BBC Trending, I've been watching it happen online. And as the BBC's Cuba correspondent, I've been seeing the results on the ground and reporting the significant changes that have been happening over the past few years. Over the next hour, we'll find out how this online revolution is playing out and meet some of the people who are in the middle of it. You could say that Cubans have had a crash course in online life over the past five or six years. Since 2013, the internet has been available via public Wi-Fi hotspots. The cost was initially very high, but it's come down substantially. A year ago, Cubans were finally able to access high-speed 3G data on their phones. And that's led to loads of them signing up to social media accounts. It's a quiet Wednesday night in Bedal, a chic neighbourhood in Havana where two-storey pre-revolutionary houses adorn the back streets. In a basement behind a gated mustard-yellow house secluded by trees, there's a recording studio. Inside, the members of El Enjambre are recording their brand-new podcast. 
There's three of them, including Camilo Condes. So we are going to like recap the whole week on Cuban Twitter, and, and we're going to talk about what's going on in Cuba during this week. He's the founder of El Enjambre, or in English, The Swarm. He's a tall man in his 30s, sporting a bright orange baseball cap and a dark grey T-shirt embossed with his Twitter handle, at Camilo Condes, in white. He got it made because he's a bit of a Twitter addict. There's also Alejandro, or Ale for short. We are now creating a new podcast, you know, and then the social media is going to open doors and it's going to open, like, spaces to everyone to create. Ali is a journalist in his 20s. He's small and stocky with jet black hair. At the time we visited, Ali worked for the state-owned Radio Rebelde, but had just a couple of days left on his contract. And lastly, Lucia, a writer. This is basically what we are doing on Twitter and on social media. Someone says something and it starts a conversation. So it's not difficult, it's interesting. Lucia is tall with bright red hair that stands out against her black dress. She's initially shy, but soon comes alive in front of the mic, quite naturally. They've just recorded their first episode. It's funny, conversational, insightful. It's not the very first Cuban podcast. There's a couple of others run by the handful of independent media outlets on the island. But in a country where most of the media is heavily one-sided... El Enjambre is trying to have a proper, well-rounded debate about Cuban affairs. The three podcasters have various opinions on government policies. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they disagree, sometimes they poke fun at the Cuban government. What they all acknowledge, Cuba needs to modernise. And having an array of views in one space is still a relatively rare and uncommon concept in Cuban media. El Enjambre isn't state-sanctioned. So it's hard to tell how the government will react when it's finally available online. So I'm really interested in you three as a dynamic. Were you friends before? What happened? How did this happen? Well, um, actually, I had this dream of um, making a podcast since a long time ago. And thanks to Twitter, I found the two of them. Like we met, actually we met on Twitter. Like we have never met before. And at first we didn't even like each other. Like we had a lot of debate on Twitter and we were always fighting. What were you fighting about and why didn't you like each other? (laughs) Uh, We fight about almost everything. (laughs) Uh, But um, I don't know, like many things like Ali uh, as... um, a radio journalist from a government media, he used to post uh, things that I used to challenge, right? And Lucia was also in the middle of that eventually. Um, but I think that today we fight about almost everything. You know, life is not black and white. Life has like many colors. So, and then on Twitter, if you are going to talk about Cuba, you are going to talk or white or black. And then the Cuba that is happening in the middle, you're never going to see it. So what I hope in, in, in someday is like trying, we get to get to a point as we give a voice to everybody. We, we, 
Pancha, plancha, con cuatro planchas, con cuantas pancha, plancha, pancha. ¿Tú conoces a, 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 a Radia? Sí, en persona, en persona la conozco. ¿Verdad? Apart from finding each other on Twitter through their relatively substantial followings, it's also the premise of their podcast. The issues they address are the issues that Cuban Twitter talks about the most. This week, it's the recent energy crisis on the island. It's been sparked by the potent combination of US sanctions and Venezuela's economic collapse. With its main oil supplier in dire economic straits, the effects are starting to be seen in Cuba in the form of long snaking queues for petrol at service stations. We saw some of them for ourselves. How much? He reckons it's just a couple of hours. Some say it's reminiscent of Cuba in the early 1990s, during the so-called special period. The 1990s were especially rough in Cuba. Its biggest ally, the Soviet Union, had collapsed, and the continuing US economic embargo meant severe shortages in basic necessities, like food, medicine, fuel and electricity. Today, on the streets in Cuba, plenty are criticizing the government for downplaying this latest energy crisis. And these latest shortages have a name. Coyuntura means a combination of events or a state of affairs. It's a bland, almost meaningless term for a situation that's affecting everyday life. And Cubans on social media were quick to mock such bureaucratic language with tweets and memes. The podcasters of El Enjambre joined in. Here, the El Enjambre team make a joke comparing a much-needed tanker of Venezuelan oil to the Titanic. Whereas before such jokes were just said at home or behind closed doors, now the mockery is on a much bigger scale. In a way the government has never had to deal with before. And it's not all coming from opponents in Miami. A fair amount is being generated and shared from inside Cuba. Theoretically, there is a law about mocking the country's leadership. But these memes and internet jokes are so widespread, it's hard to say what could happen to these critics, if anything, at all. Critics in Cuba are often branded counter-revolutionary by the Cuban state, a term levelled at many who speak out or oppose the communist-run government. But Lucia, Ale and Camila don't believe they deserve that label. This is a revolution, and I've never considered myself to be a revolutionary or a counter-revolutionary. No one is going to say, yes, I am counter-revolutionary. But for me, politics doesn't interest me that much. I'm interested in other things. As Camilo always says, my country is hurting, and so are we. And I'm going to tell you, I feel, yes, there were brave people who fought, and yes, this happened. But now, in this moment of giving opportunities, I don't like this repression and this authority that's imposed. El Enjambre is backed by El Toque, an independent news site in Cuba which pays for El Enjambre's studio time, but not their wages. However, broadly speaking, podcast making in Cuba is still in its infancy. But the potential is huge. Five years ago, only around a quarter of Cubans were internet users. That number is now almost two-thirds. You're listening to the BBC World Service. 
Probably one of the most important things to remember about the rise of the internet in Cuba is that it's not been an evolution, but, well, a revolution. The father of the Cuban revolution, Fidel Castro, once said that he saw the internet as a revolutionary tool. But that didn't make things any faster. Mass connectivity is finally starting to reach the island. And along with it, social media. Cubans had heard of Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and so on. But few had much experience of them. Iruel Sanchez runs a popular pro-government blog, La Pupila Insomne. In English, The Sleepless Pupil. He's also an advisor to the Ministry of Communications, an old-school socialist and believer in the power of communication. The Internet continues to be a fabulous instrument for scientific investigation. It continues to be a fabulous instrument for relations between societies and within societies. The Internet is not bad. What's bad is the control of the Internet by a few hands and by one single country. Today, we do not interact with the Internet. We interact with Internet applications. We interact with five companies, which are Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple and Microsoft. The past couple of years have been a steep learning curve, but it's one that young Cubans have embraced with gusto. As we stroll around Plaza de Cristo in Old Havana, one of the smaller squares that's dotted around the city, we see school kids in PE classes, people selling cold drinks, classic cars rolling by. It's bustling. Pretty much everyone in the square is on their phone and using the internet. Places like this one are public access Wi-Fi hotspots. Their introduction in Cuba marks something of a turning point. Set up by the government in 2015, you'd see people sitting in the shade on their phones or sitting down with their laptops to get online using a prepaid card. It was expensive to begin with, around $4.50 for an hour's internet access. Now it's much cheaper, about a dollar an hour. A couple of people we spoke to said public Wi-Fi spots bring a sense of community to using the internet. You'd come with your friends, spend a couple of hours here, scroll through social media and hang out. But a dollar an hour is still a lot in Cuba, and most Cubans would swap the public hotspots for a home connection in a heartbeat, if they could afford it. We put that to Miguel Rodriguez Gutierrez, the Director General of Information Technology at the Ministry of Communications. No se puede abordar la situación de los precios de Internet, del acceso a Internet, you cannot address the situation of internet prices, internet access, without talking about infrastructure limitations so that people can connect. And I don't think I'm revealing any secrets when I say that the fundamental limitations of our telecommunications infrastructure are due to the blockade of the United States that is tangible, exists, and is there. It's alive in the daily life of all Cubans. In Cuba, with access to the internet, what we prioritize is service quality and accessibility. The the prices are not the highest at this time. Remember that we had high rates and gradually we have been adapting them and reducing them so that people can connect better. We're always working to lower these prices, but they have to be in correspondence with the real capacity of our infrastructure and the real capacity to provide a service that has certain quality. We also asked Mr Gutierrez about the censorship of Cubans that openly criticise the government, but he refused to answer. These questions were too political. 
You can see signs of Cuba's digital revolution everywhere. President Diaz-Canel started tweeting last October. Then in December, the government allowed the public to have 3G data on their phones. Overnight, Cubans were messaging each other with excitement. Politics is now a hot topic of conversation on Twitter. The government tries to keep up churning out revolutionary propaganda under the hashtag Somos Continuidad. In English, we are continuity. In other words, a continuation of the socialist revolution. But we've started to see the previously unthinkable. People engaging with ministers, calling them out, criticising them. And then there are the tensions that the pro-government blogger Iruel Sanchez mentioned. How does a communist-run government deal with the huge Silicon Valley companies that control social media? Case in point. Last month, Twitter shut down the accounts of dozens of government officials and supporters, including the former president and head of the Cuban Communist Party, Raúl Castro. The government accused Twitter of mass censorship. The state-run website Cuba Debate, which had its accounts shut down, hinted that US intelligence might have been behind the ban. We repeatedly asked Twitter for an explanation. They declined to comment, but instead pointed us to policies that ban users from artificially amplifying or disrupting conversations by using multiple accounts. Many of the accounts were later reinstated, but the whole incident shows just how uneasy the relationship between Cuban communism and Californian capitalism can be. Of course, most Cubans are using the internet for pretty innocuous reasons, like connecting with their families abroad. However, in recent weeks and months, we've seen the first small signs of civil society organising itself via social media. This year, the annual Gay Pride March, organised by the state's lesbian and gay rights organisation, Senesex, was cancelled at the last minute. The government's reasoning that the international political climate was wrong, simply didn't sit right with many in the island's gay community. So they decided to organise their own gay pride march instead at a different location. And they got the word out almost completely through Facebook and Twitter. At the heart of it was Mirna Rosa Padron Dixon. In Cuba, I've been involved in the LGBTQ community since 2009. I'm old enough to have witnessed five decades of Cuban resistance. I'm over 50, around 53, 54, and by profession, I am a community educator, a cultural promoter, and the wife of a beautiful woman. Mirna is a small and quirky Afro-Cuban woman. She's hard to miss thanks to her bohemian wardrobe, a short-sleeved white embossed shirt with billowing black and white harem trousers. And wrapped around her wrist, she has a necklace made up of white beads, a symbol, she says, of the Afro-Cuban religion Yoruba. She says she wears it as an act of defiance. I get the sense of someone who is prepared to stand out in Cuba. We are exactly where the march started on the 11th of May in Parque Central, in Havana, in front of José Martí's statue. In front of us, we have the Museum of Bellas Artes. There's also Hotel Inglaterra. 
We stayed here with our flags, and when my wife Syria and Raul Saul, the coordinator of the Afro-Cuban Alliance, opened up the two flags, an avalanche of journalists and people that I didn't know joined us. I remember seeing four gay men on the corner of a street close by. There were four, all dressed up in beautiful dresses. I remember one was dressed from head to toe in red, was wearing a mask and had the Cuban flag in one hand and the pride flag in the other. I was part of that avalanche of journalists that afternoon which Mirna talked about. It was a fascinating moment, but it wasn't just the traditional media who turned out to see it, the BBC and international news agencies... As someone pointed out to me at the time, whereas any previous defiance of the Cuban state tended to be tucked away or shut down, this time it was being live-streamed on Facebook. And that was especially important when it reached the Malecon, Havana's waterfront promenade, and a combination of police and state security stopped the march in its tracks. Increíble, claro. Uno, yo era una de las personas que... It's incredible. I was one of the people at the front, looking around, chatting away, laughing, and we didn't even realise the sheer amount of people that were behind us. That's another thing that really bothers me about the state media. They said we were only 30 or 40 people. No, we weren't. We were more than three or 400. Others thought the group was closer to 200 people. But either way, for a protest in Cuba, that's significant. Mirna sees parallels between the LGBTQ community's fight for freedom and the Cuban revolution. She says her commitment to a cause echoes that of Fidel Castro and his revolutionaries. I was born and raised with the Cuban revolution and I always believe in the strength of that union, in the force that speaks of freedom and now I know what it means to be free and what is freedom. Yes, I know, I'm in Cuba and in the world for my freedom of expression, for my freedom to love, for my freedom to be a free spirit and to experience different things. Still to come on Cuba's digital revolution, more on how social media is transforming the country. A dispute between Cuban gamers and the communist-run government over a homemade intranet network. The island's independent journalists whose work is online but not seen in Cuba. And the first self-made Cuban influencer. Stay tuned. That's Pedro Melendez, or as he's more commonly known, Pedrito el Pacatero. He's a 24-year-old YouTuber, an influencer. In the back streets of old Havana, he's got his phone attached to a selfie stick and he's filming a Facebook Live. Before you ask, yes, influencers do exist in Cuba. But like other forms of internet subcultures, the concept is very new in this country. Arguably, he is one of the more famous ones. With only three years' experience under his belt, he's amassed nearly 40,000 followers on YouTube. That doesn't sound like many, but for Cuba it's actually very high. We meet him in Plaza de Cristo. It's a busy Wi-Fi hotspot. Pedrito goes there from time to time to use the internet. He arrives on a flashy metallic red motorbike and swaps his safety helmet for a white and black personalised baseball cap. 
with the hashtag PP for Pedrito El Paquetero. One thing's for sure, he knows how to market himself well. He's young, confident and bright. He was studying engineering at university until he realised that being an influencer was what he really wanted to do. His YouTube videos are almost always shot on the streets of Havana. Pedrito bounces around, full of energy and with a smile, approaching Cubans at bus stops or as they walk past, shoving a mic under their noses for their thoughts on his chosen topic of the day. It can be anything from the latest reggaeton hit to the recent transport crisis. And he uses humour to disarm people into talking, to almost trick them into breaking their default silence rather than just mechanically echoing the party line. God knows I wish I'd had as much success over the past five years in getting Cubans to open up in front of a microphone. But for Pedrito, this isn't just about having fun. It's a business. When I'm feeling out of form and they ask me my occupation, I always ask myself, what should I put? And I always end up putting students. I can't say that I'm a worker because they're going to ask me what I do. I have a contract with Google, so yes, this is my job. Right now, this is my job. I only dedicate myself to social networks. So he's making decent money. He wasn't keen to tell us how much he makes. But in a country where the average wage is 40 US dollars a month, Pedrito told us he bought his new motorbike with the money he makes from YouTube. YouTube allows users to make money off their videos by showing adverts at the beginning or in the middle of videos. But the bulk of Pedrito's money is coming from sponsors. One of my sponsors is My Cosmetic Surgery in Miami. Another is ADA in Cuba, an online magazine about Cubans and what happens in Cuba. These are the two sponsors that are working with me and the adverts are stamped across my videos. It's no surprise that Pedrito has sponsorship deals with businesses in Miami. The Cuban-American community there is large and influential. The majority arrived during the Cuban Revolution, some near the beginning in the early 1960s, shortly after Fulgencio Batista was ousted by Fidel Castro's rebel army, and others later, especially in the 1980s and 90s. The public that follow me, 60% live in Florida, in the US, they're all in Miami, West Palm Beach, Houston, all of Florida. They are around 10% in Spain and less in Mexico, Italy. In Cuba, I don't know, maybe 2%. Funnily enough, as we're speaking to Pedrito, a Cuban fan living in the US approaches him. So Pedrito's fan tells him he's watching him avidly from Houston and, and wanted to thank him as well. He said he's doing marvellous work and reckons plenty of his friends in the US are watching his YouTube channel too. How does it make you feel when you get recognised? How does it make you feel when you get recognised? I don't know. Somehow I know that my work is working and as it's coming, it's having the reach that I hope for. Every time I make a video, I hope it has a greater reach than the previous one. Every time I tackle a theme, I say, I think this topic has to be vital. And even if the video doesn't go vital, 
It doesn't discourage me because the video has 10,000 views. But I will try to do every video, and when people recognize me, when people greet me on the street, I say to myself, what you're doing is working. Logistically, it's been a battle for Pedrito. He started on YouTube three years ago, but it was a very slow start. In two years from January 2016 to 2018, I only published three videos on my channel. It's a familiar story in Cuba. There was an opportunity to be taken, but until very recently, getting online was so expensive. And when Pedrito did manage to get connected, the speeds were generally too slow and weak for him to upload video. I was wasting the last bit of money I had. I would spend about two hours, so six dollars, and I still couldn't publish the video because I tried to do it using Wi-Fi. I was so upset that I said I would not upload the video. I sent it to friends instead and left YouTube at the time. Then, in February 2018, he found out that a business complex in Havana, the Miramar Trade Center, had high-speed Wi-Fi and an internet cafe. For the first time, Pedrito was able to upload a video within 15 minutes. When I discovered this, that I had more access to the internet, it was important because it was more affordable. Later, in 2018, came another big development. Cubans got 3G data on their phones. Maybe it was time to really think about developing the YouTube channel, seen from a different perspective, not as a hobby, but as a job. That's where things changed. He's even skirted around the edges of politics with sketches like elections in Cuba, democracy or falsehood, asking why people vote without having the slightest idea how the process works. But he's careful to keep his delivery neutral, so it would be tough for him to be branded as critical. Unlike some of the people we met earlier who tackle these difficult themes head on, he finds alternative ways to talk about them. It's a fine balance. If I teach on purely social, economic, political issues, then it becomes complicated because I may have problems. So I look for content that is... I don't really want to say the word, but I look for content that is silly because a lot of people find it very attractive and refreshing too. You might have had a bad day, you put on my content and I've already made your day. Politics runs through the veins of Cubans. What the state says affects how much money they make, what they eat, what they say, even what games they play. Don't worry, those aren't real gunshots, nor is there anything to be alarmed about. It's a video game. Battlefield 3, to be precise. Up until recently, gamers would get online through a private network called SNET, short for Street Network, not only to play their favourite American games, but to chat online, use forums and watch American shows. There are rules too. You can't talk about politics or religion. You can't offend anyone and pornography is banned. At its height, it was pretty sophisticated, kind of like a social media platform on the World Wide Web. So the games that we play most is um, Dota. We play a lot of Dota. It's very this kind, this 
game specifically is one of the most famous. I mean, not only in Cuba, but worldwide. What is it? Uh, it's like, uh, it's from a gender called MOBA, also World of Warcraft. Shooters like Battlefield or Counter-Strike or, uh, I don't know, Rainbow Six, all kind of things. Ernesto de Armas is a gamer in his 20s, and in the past he used SNET to play them. He wasn't an administrator, just a user of the private network that was strung together by cables from house to house. So how did it work? What was needed in order to set it up? Well, uh, all kinds of uh, equipment, technological equipment, like uh, uh, devices from uh, nanostation, uh, microtic, LAN cables, all kind of things, routers, switches. Uh, it was quite complicated. SNET was a classic example of an important verb in understanding Cuba, resolver, meaning to resolve. No high-speed internet allowed at home? Well, no problem. Rig up your own neighbourhood-level intranet with a few buddies, cobbled together with some cables and some basic tech brought into the country from abroad. But in early August, the Ministry of Communications announced it would be absorbing the private network into a youth computing club run by the state. Ernesto said it's now tough to find any remnants of the network. It's actually illegal to pass a cable from one block to another. It's illegal? It's illegal. Okay. Okay. But there are cables, so if we went around here, we would see those cables? Maybe you see them, maybe not. It depends on what parts of Fesnet have already been uh, absorbed. This is like a, uh, like a process that has yeah. been... Uh, uh, progressive. I mean, it's not like uh, just in one second all of them are going to... So if we just took a walk around, me, you and Will, do you think you'd be able to spot a cable to us if there was one? Yeah, if there, were, yeah. Was, if there, if there was one, I think I, I could spot it, but I don't actually think... Yeah, you don't area. think there is one around this area? No. And he was right. Despite looking for evidence of the Yesnet infrastructure around the city, we couldn't find any. So the cables that do still exist, they're probably outside of Havana then, you're saying, right? No, inside Havana. What this, parts uh, of Havana do you think they would be in? Mainly uh, Alamar. Alamar. Where is that, Will? Alamar. Just outside Havana. Yeah, Alamar, yeah, Cerro, um, Havana Vieja, Havana del Este. Havana Vieja todavía tiene. Yeah, of course. Since the announcement of its absorption into the state-run youth computer club, Many people, including Ernesto, protested outside the Ministry of Communications. It was a small protest, or as the government puts it, a provocation of around 100 people in total. And the government did eventually agree not to shut it down completely, but take it over instead. There, Ernesto live tweeted as the day unfolded. You guys didn't go without a fight, though. Yeah, uh, at first, uh, uh, the, the administration of SNET... They, uh, they presented a project uh, to the Ministry of Communications uh, asking for them to uh, give them a special license to operate or at least uh, have some kind of condescendency with them. And the Ministry uh, radically said no. And after that, uh, we went to in front of the Ministry of Communications uh, to to protest against this and, uh, and they agree to uh, do all this with the Hoven Clue of Computacion. That was like uh, the kind of, of uh, saving 
that they proposed to us. So a lot of people uh, agree with this because they, they thought and they actually, right now they think that there is no other way. So yeah, that's what happened. And after that, uh, a lot of people still was against this and uh, we tried to go again uh, to protest in front of the Ministry of Communications and well, we received all kind of threats uh, from the from the police. We received uh, we were detained. We were threatened. Our family, our friends. Did you then decide? Well, look, I can't mess around anymore. I have to just step away from this. And mm, I think the reason why I step aside was first of all because I. I didn't uh, receive the support from the people inside SNET that I uh, thought I will receive. And second of all, because uh, they threatened uh, my family. So maybe I, I cannot uh, fear for me. But it's very hard not to fear for your family. For Ernesto, SNET was a means to an end. He speaks with great fervour about gaming. That's all he's fighting for, the right to play video games, something which he feels is slowly being taken away from him. Uh, I think right now we even have communities, gamer communities. We have one, one that is very famous and it's the main gamer community in Cuba. It's in fact the one that represents Cuba in the esports uh, area. It's called ADEC, uh, Agrupación de Deportes Electrónicos de Cuba. It's not recognized by the government, but it actually exists. And it's, uh, it's, very, it's very satisfying to see people working for Cuba to be represented, I mean Cuban gamers to be represented uh, in the world. Because here we have very good gamers, I mean competitive people that can actually compete in the real professional uh, scene of esports. And because he's all about the games, Ernesto doesn't see himself as particularly political or anti-government. He doesn't see why his hobby has been singled out. I mean, I love my country. Uh, I have uh, chosen to stay here. And I have uh, different thinking uh, about many things uh, related to the government. But that doesn't mean an enemy or that doesn't mean that the uh, United States pay me uh, to say what I think. I think that's the extremist uh, way of uh, seeing the reality, using that, that uh, excuse to deny access to, to citizens, to uh, a worldwide uh, useful tool as internet is completely ununderstandable. I, I think that's the word. We've spoken to many people to understand how Cubans are using social media. Some of them have been branded by the state as contra-revolucionarios, counter-revolutionaries. If you're labelled that, you're defined as being in direct opposition to the revolution, and therefore you're a threat. Many are well aware that they've been officially labelled as one. Like Abraham Jimenez, an independent journalist who founded the digital magazine El Estornudo, The Sneeze, he says it's a magazine that doesn't do news. Instead, it tells stories of life in Cuba. Abram wasn't always a journalist. He worked for the Ministry of Interior before becoming one. As a result, he's not allowed to leave the country for five years. 
a rule imposed on ex-ministry officials ostensibly to protect state secrets. We meet him outside a hotel, close to the Malecon. He's a young, self-confident Cuban, and despite the pressures that he's often under, he seems unfazed about openly doing journalism in Cuba that the government disapproves of. The biggest difficulty is that we work in an illegal area in the country. In February of this year, when the new constitution was approved, a new rule was added that authorized media outlets were those that were approved by the Communist Party. So the rest of us, journalists who work for independent media, who own our own media or work as freelancers, we are carrying out an illegal activity. Specifically, Article 55 of the new Cuban constitution states, people's freedom of press is recognised. However, it goes on to say the state establishes the principles of organisation and operation for all means of social communication. Press freedom has always been a problem in Cuba. The 2019 World Press Freedom Index ranks Cuba as 169th out of 180 countries. The new constitution has again formalised the state's control over most forms of communication. The government argues that they've been subjected to a six-decades-long attempt by Washington to oust them via everything from a CIA-backed invasion at the Bay of Pigs to using NGOs and journalists in what Fidel Castro called the Battle of Ideas. As such, they argue they need to keep a tight leash on what's said and by whom. Still in the 21st century, a generation of new young Cuban journalists have little truck with that argument – Recently, a whole host of independent journalism outlets on the island signed a declaration denouncing instances of what they said was state aggression against them, such as arbitrary detention, and urging the government to legalise independent journalists and their journalism. I believe in Cuba no one is going to shoot you in the head and none of us are running the same risks of journalists in Mexico, El Salvador and Guatemala in Central American countries. Here the risks are different, but they are a big challenge. I think that in all this adversity of having everything against you, of doing journalism in a country that is not digitalized, of exercising a profession that isn't authorized, everything that it does to you, it grows you, and you try to narrate a country that people want to read about that isn't state press. And I suppose with such limited an amount of internet, running an internet-based media is... Even more of a challenge. Yes, it's a great challenge for two reasons. The first is we're doing journalism in a space where Cuban users are sparse. Let's talk about the last statistics that showed that 56% of Cubans are connected to the internet, but the same 56% don't consume journalism. They want to communicate with their families that live outside of Cuba. And the other is censorship. For example, my website is blocked, so those who tried to access my website couldn't access it. It's hard to do journalism for a handful of people. So Abram is free to have a digital magazine, and he's also free to upload content to it. The thing is, no one on the island can read it because the government blocks his website. He says that the majority of readers of his site are from the US, Spain and Cuba, in that order. But that's a recurring theme, whether you're Abram and have a website that is blocked by the state, or you're Pedrito, an influencer having fun and making money whilst doing so. What separates them, of course, is that Abram is overtly political. What would you say to the people who call you a counter-revolutionary? 
Eh, le digo lo que, lo que le digo siempre. I'll tell them what I always tell them. Cuba is not a country that was made for an exclusive type of person, and it has to open up to diversity of opinion and to spectrum of opinions. I always say I am not against the state-run newspaper Grandma, nor am I against opposition blogger Joanny Sanchez. So you cannot tell people what they should consume. So that's what I say. I'm not against the revolution. My family is totally revolutionary. I believe in the revolution. I only do journalism to tell stories of the country. If this is counter-revolutionary, then they have a problem. So if Abraham Jimenez is considered a counter-revolutionary internet user... Then pro-government blogger Iruel Sanchez is the polar opposite, using his space online to promote the party line. Cuba is in a position where we don't decide what we look like to others. But the most powerful government in the world decides what does Cuba look like. This revolutionary instrument has changed a lot in 20 years, but what needs to be done is to know its operation and continue, as Fidel says, trying to use it as a transformative tool, not with an objective to dominate. That's what prevails today. There is an economic aggression that seeks to create difficulties in people's daily lives, and obviously those difficulties generate tensions. You also have a communication device that converts these tensions into elements of political mobilization. You do not have to go to university or do a doctorate to realize that. It also makes aggression invisible, the president said recently. The objective of this economic aggression is to blame the Cuban government for economic problems. That does not mean that in Cuba there are no economic things that are not bad. If you do not let fuel arrive, the fault is the Cuban government. Because socialism is inefficient, it is inept. The Amazon burns, but it is not the fault of capitalism. It is Bolsonaro's only. But if there is no fuel in Cuba because the U.S. government prevents it, it is the fault of socialism. Back at the Malecon, streetlights flickered on, illuminating the road behind us as we remained sat, face towards the Florida Straits, with a copy of Cuba's state newspaper, Granma. For as much as we're talking about the boom of the internet on the island, and it is real, you know, you've seen uh, over these, this time that you've been here and in your previous trips and You know, the, the extent to which it is now becoming ubiquitous. We just need to look along the Malacan and we're surrounded here by, you know, young people with mobile phones. That's a big change. Nevertheless, this newspaper and the state TV broadcast at 8pm on a, on a weekday night is, is still absolutely stitched into the DNA of Cubans and how they understand their their government, the party, and, and therefore the island. We've been speaking to Ernesto from SNET, or who used to be part of SNET, and Abram, who has his own blog too, and it's completely different to what is reflected in this newspaper. Yeah. Now, um, certainly in the case of Abram and El Estornudo, their content can't be seen on the island, but, you know, those of us uh, who can see it outside, or if anyone turns on a VPN in this country and they can get that information 
Uh, they will see stuff that's critical. They will see stuff that um, outlines the difficulties in the hospitals, for example, a taboo subject that will never really be reflected in grammar. Um, grammar will only really reflect, say, a shortage in hospitals if there's been an official take on it. The internet in Cuba is not exactly the same as that in many other countries. It's an emerging entity that is trying to catch up with the rest of the world, despite US sanctions and government controls. But the fact it exists in a country where once it didn't is revolutionary in itself. The authorities know they will have to keep up with the demand for better, cheaper internet access, but they're also struggling with the ideas of freedom and capitalism that come with it. President Diaz-Canel and his ministers will find themselves increasingly struggling with those tensions. But one thing seems inevitable. Cubans will continue to get more connected to each other and the outside world. That's it for this edition of the BBC Trending Podcast. I'm Raha Kansara. And I'm Will Grant. Our thanks to Julia Galliano-Rios in Cuba. Sarah Jackson was our production coordinator. Our producer was Sean Olsop and our editor, Mike Wendley. Let us know what you thought about the programme. You can do that by sending us a tweet or a Facebook message at BBC Trending. Or email me. My email is reha, R-E-H-A dot Kansara, K-A-N-S-A-R-A at bbc.co.uk. And before I go, just time to tell you about the conversation. I'm Kim Chakaneta, and I'm the host of The Conversation podcast from the BBC World Service. Oh boy, I'm overwhelmed with so much to say in such a short time. Some recent favourites include an episode on female roadies, these two incredible women who've just been touring the world of musicians and had some incredible stories to tell. It's a live show and sometimes things go wrong and tonight something's gone wrong. <laughs> I also found the episode on women living with schizophrenia incredibly powerful. She does not believe that there's such a thing as a mental illness. She still thinks that perhaps it was her demonic possession that happened to me. Another episode was about women who were standing up to street harassment. I'm sick of it. It's in front of my house. It's in my street. It's near my train station. It's all the time. And I've always had female flight attendants on my wish list and we finally got to speak to two women who had spent a lot of time up there. People just stormed the door because they had to get off the plane. They were so scared. That's the conversation from the BBC. World Service. You can't put price tag on these emotions. Search for the conversation wherever you found this podcast.